Take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. As Jesus traveled through Samaria, he stopped at a well to converse with a woman who was there, of a woman we discover of, of ill repute. And very quickly in the conversation, this lady realizes that Jesus is different. There's something about him, that he's a man of incredible wisdom. So she asks him a question, and she's trying to distract him from what, uh, the con- where the conversation is going. It's getting uncomfortable. So she tries to distract him, and she asks him a question that has to do with a major conversation of that day, the worship wars that were taking place there in Israel between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews believed that God said what he meant, that that true worship had to take place involving the temple. However, the Samaritans believed that as long as they were worshiping God, the true God, they could do so uh, wherever they wanted. As long as they had the right heart, they could do so in a mountain that they had set apart for that purpose. And so the woman asked him, where do we have to worship? She says, I perceive you're a prophet. It's an understatement. Where should we worship? In Jerusalem, at the temple, or in our mountain? Who's right, Jesus? Well, to this, Jesus replied with with incredible wisdom. Verse number 24, Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Over the past three weeks, we focused on the second half of Jesus' answer, that when we worship, we need to worship in truth. In other words, we need to worship the right one the right way. And so we've examined four foundational principles from God's word to help us in that. The first principle is the principle of God's glory. That worship should be to God alone and for God alone. We exist for God's glory. The very purpose of creation is for God's pleasure. And what this means is that worship is not primarily about us. It's for God alone. This means that we can't approach God any way that we want. We have to approach God the way that he requires, which led us into the second principle, the principle of truth. Our worship should be how God requires. We need to approach the right one in the right way. And we saw that that involved three things. That our worship should be biblically saturated. God's word should saturate everything that we do. He desires that we, that we worship him by repeating his words back to him. We saw that it should be biblically accurate. That what we say should be true. It should be right according to God's word. It should be clear And handle it rightly. And lastly, we saw that it should be biblically proper. We looked at Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel and Leviticus 10 with Nadab and Abihu and Matthew 15 with the Pharisees. And here in John 4 where Christ says we're to worship in truth. And from those texts we were reminded that God does not accept worship that is not done the way he requires it to be. No matter how good our intentions are. So our corporate worship is to be regulated by the commands in Scripture, the way God has commanded us to come to Him. 
That means that our worship needs to consist of singing the Word and praying the Word and reading the Word and preaching the Word and picturing the Word in the ordinances. And the reason for all of this we saw was edification. Last week we looked at two more foundational principles. That a primary purpose for congregational worship is the edification of fellow believers. This means that my worship is not just about my praise to God, but also about benefiting those around me. We saw that edification is corporate, not individual. That's, that Sunday morning is not, is not about me only, but about the good of the body as a whole. So as we work through the elements of the service, we're reminded that each body, each part of the body should be made more like Christ because of what we do. And this means that edification means more than preference. The question is not, do I like this? But does this make all of us more like Christ? Not, not does this engender some kind of emotional response, but does this help me serve God? We saw that as a result of that, edification must be intelligible. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we saw that since a primary purpose of worship is edification, then worship needs to be clear. It's that idea of intelligibility. It needs to be easily understandable. We shouldn't sit back and say, now what exactly did that mean? I'm unclear as to that. The message must be clear and true. And the final purpose we looked at, the principle we looked at, was the principle of, congr- of the congregational church. The church is to be a banquet hall where the people of God feast on God's word. The church is not to be a concert hall where people come to be entertained. And as a result, we saw that God desires that his people sing. That all his people sing to one another. We observe from Ephesians 5 that when a believer is walking in the Spirit, a telltale sign of that is that they love to sing with God's people. So we don't replace congregational singing with a few talented individuals entertaining. We don't turn up the volume so loud that it drowns out the sound of congregational singing. We don't stand silent while the music takes place. We sing out. We sing out joyfully and boldly and triumphantly with a joyful noise to the Lord. And in order to help us assist with this, we follow four important principles. First, we try to sing singable music. Music that is easily singable by the average person. It doesn't take some amazing talent to sing the song. We try to sing tasteful music. Music that is appropriate and that is clear. The message is, is very clear and biblical in what it says. We try to sing biblical music. Music that is true that says what the Bible says. And we try to stick to familiar music. While we do introduce new music, we try to keep that at a minimum so that you can sing out knowing the songs. But with all of this, there's a danger. He says we've worked through these foundational principles. The message has been that we must avoid being worked into an emotional frenzy devoid of truth. And that's that, that just because something makes us feel good doesn't mean that it is good. 
However, often in, a, in an effort to avoid that ditch in worship, we actually overcorrect and end up in the other ditch. We become stoic, passive, uh, frankly, hard. We've seen that we must worship God in truth. That we have to approach God the way he tells us to approach him. That we have to worship the right one the right way. However, in Christ's answer to the Samaritan woman, he also informs us that we are to worship in spirit and in truth. And so... We're to worship the right one the right way, but we're also to do so with the right heart. We have to ask the question, what does it mean to worship God in spirit? We've seen what it means to worship in truth, but what about this spirit part? What does it mean to worship him in spirit? Well, there are three important things to consider as we discuss worshiping God in spirit. The first point is that worship in spirit involves our emotions. While we don't allow our emotions to drive everything, neither do we suppress them. And this point rises out of another, a number of texts, but this morning I will just point to three of them. Psalm 47 verse 1, the psalmist says, Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with songs of joy. Psalm 134 in verse 2 tells us, Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. In 1 Timothy 2.8 Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. From these texts we see that God does not desire a dry ritualism. You know, sadly in an effort to make sure that we're true, We've often interpreted this as a message that worship should be devoid of any kind of emotion. We need to be stoic and bland. We must stand, stand rigid. You know, be careful lest any smile crosses our face while we worship. And as good Baptists, you know, we maintain austerity and severity as we worship. But sometimes, you know, someone gets out of line a little bit. The message of the song or the content of of the Bible begins to take hold in their heart. And before they know it, I don't know if like a tingling sensation fills their arms and they feel the need to raise it up. And of course, as good Baptists, when this happens and we, the next thing we know, we, we see this person in the middle of our service holding up their hands. Well, like all good Baptists, we do what we do. We stop, and we stare at them, and we think, what a weirdo. What are they doing? But I'd like to propose to you this morning that they're not the ones who are weird. Rather, it's we who are a little bit off. You know, in the natural course of life, when we hear incredible news or when something amazing happens, or we're confronted with some message of of important nature, we don't respond with stoicism. 
Rather, we respond with with joyful exclamations. We cheer and we raise our hands and we clap and we respond with enthusiasm. But somehow that's like wiped out when we walk through the doors of the church. You know, we could use some good old enthusiastic emotional responses to worship. We shouldn't look at someone as strange or immature when they raise their hands or they clap. In fact, these things are things the Bible tells us we ought to be doing. Now, I don't think the Bible is commanding unnatural or forced reactions to worship. It's not what it's saying. For the moment it becomes forced or rote, it becomes itself dry ritualism. But I do think that what these passages are saying is that worship should engender natural emotional responses. One man put it this way. Posture in prayer is never a matter of indifference. The slouching position of the body while one is supposed to be praying is an abomination to the Lord. On the other hand, it's also true that Scripture nowhere prescribes one and only one correct posture during prayer. Different positions of arms and hands and of the body as a whole are indicated. All of these are permissible as long as they symbolize different aspects of the worshiper's reverent attitude and as long as they truly interpret the sentiments of the heart. This would apply as well to singing or reading scripture or receiving the preached word or picturing the gospel and the ordinances. These all should engender natural emotional responses. Responses that are appropriate to the message from God. So what this means is that while you're singing, if the message of the song overwhelms you and touches your heart and you, and you want to raise your hands, then by all means do that. And if the rest of us don't, we shouldn't look on you with disdain or discomfort. If the conviction of the Spirit leads you to bow your head in prayer, then by all means Bow your head in prayer. The convicting message leads you to, to agree audibly. Then do so. But what should never happen is stoic or passive or hard responses to worship. Because that's indicative of a heart that's hard to the gospel. Now I'm not proposing forced or false emotionalism. Please don't get up and start running around the auditorium. That's not what we're proposing. But I am proposing that we should be engaged in our worship. And that, by definition, involves your emotions. To worship in spirit involves our emotion. Second, though, to worship in spirit also involves our devotion. In the Gospel of Matthew, as the Sadducees are are trying to trap Jesus, they send a lawyer to ask him a question about what is the greatest commandment in the Mosaic Law. And in response, Jesus gives us a lesson in worship. Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus says to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, And with all your soul 
and with all your mind. Here Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.5 and he informs us that worship of God requires devotion. Now two things need to be noted from this text about this devotion. First, this devotion is complete devotion. God commands that we love him with all of our heart and our soul and our mind. To the ancient Hebrews, the heart referred to the core of one's personal being. It's the very center of who that person is. It's their very identity. The term soul is closest to what we today would call our emotions. Is the word Jesus used when he cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, my soul is troubled in me. Again, this this love was not to be a stoic, a a passive, or hard love, but one that resulted in great emotion. When this is the case, everyone knows about this love. It's the picture that we see in the movies. You know where the, the boy and the girl's eyes lock from across the room, and the, the fireworks go off, and the music plays, If it's a Hallmark channel, it starts to snow. I'm talking about this is that love we're talking about. It's the picture of the parent sitting up all night in anguish with a sick child, tenderly brushing their brow and and brushing back their hair and touching them with a cool cloth to cool them off. It's the picture of the spouse married for decades, grieving at the graveside of their departed companion. That's the kind of emotions that we're to have in our love for God. None of them are stoic or passive. The word mind there, love the Lord with all your mind, corresponds to what is usually translated might in Deuteronomy 6.5. It's it's the same sense of of intellectual uh, vigor, energy, and determination. It it carries the meaning of of mental work and of strength. We're to to think hard about the Lord. What's he saying here? He's saying that we should love God in every way possible. Love for God and, and the corresponding worship of God cannot simply be a part of who we are. It must be completely who we are. It's not just a Sunday thing that we do. It is everything about us. It is our very identity. It says that it should be everything about us. God says that we are to love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. God's not interested in part of us. God wants all of us. So worship in spirit involves our complete devotion to him. Every aspect, every place, every minute devoted to God. This then builds into the second aspect of this devotion. When the devotion is complete and we are loving God with all of our hearts and soul and mind and it is who we are and our worship is an outpouring of that, then we also see that this devotion is caring. You see, Jesus went on to answer the lawyer's question. It didn't stop there. He continues on, and in verse 39 of chapter 22 in Matthew, he says, the second is like to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
When we worship in spirit with complete devotion to God, it pours out into the way that we interact with others. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. It means that every Sunday we ask God to help us remember that this church does not belong to us. He's the only one who's purchased it and it costs the blood of his son. That means that no matter how long we've been at this church, whether it's 50 years or one week, it still doesn't belong to you. It doesn't matter how much you have given to this church. It still doesn't belong to you. It's still not about us. We're to love our neighbor as ourself. You know, some of us really struggle with this. We love ourselves. We have our opinion. And we really don't like anybody that contradicts it. When they don't do things the way we want them to do it, we get mad. But in order to worship God in spirit, we have to get over ourselves. Instead, we're to sacrificially love our neighbor. We cannot say we love God while simultaneously standing in conflict with our neighbor. The reality is that it's all about God. Worshiping in spirit means that we love. We love God and we love others. There's one final aspect to worship in spirit we need to examine this morning. Worship in spirit involves our obedience. Take your Bibles and turn over to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. This principle arises out of this minor prophet here in Micah. Specifically, verses 6 to 8, the prophet writes, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Here, as Micah is speaking to the nation of Judah, Judah was heading towards destruction. But as we saw a few weeks ago from Amos 5, this was not because worship was failing to happen, that they had stopped worshiping. Rather, it was because they had stopped worshiping rightly. They were worshiping not how God prescribed. And so Micah poses a question to Judah about what exactly pleases God. In truth, We need to be asking this same question often. God, what do you require from us? What pleases you? And from this interaction in Micah, we must draw two important conclusions. First, God is not impressed with empty ritualism. God is not impressed with empty ritualism. Micah poses to Judah acts of extreme sacrifice. He asks, will God be pleased with burnt offerings and calves of a year old? 
In other words, will, will God be pleased if I simply go through the prescribed rituals, the things God tells me to do? Is that what's going to please God? What if we offer thousands of rams? I mean, now Micah ups the ante a little bit. What if we go beyond what God requires and make extreme acts of worship? What about if we, if we give 10,000 rivers of oil? What if we make the most extreme financial sacrifice to God possible? Is that going to please God? Micah notes that God's not interested in empty ritualism. You can go through all the rituals you want, but it doesn't make your worship authentic. You can stand when you're supposed to stand and sit when you're supposed to sit and say amen when you're supposed to say amen. Bring your Bible like a good Christian is supposed to do. You can make sure your church uses the right hymn book and the right instruments and the right Bible version and any other thing that you think is important. But God's not interested in empty ritual. Instead, Micah responds that God desires an obedient heart. Micah states that God's already told us what pleases him. And Micah summarizes it in three statements. First, we're to do justly, to do justice. God desires more that we act righteously and justly than that we make incredible sacrifices. For justice is who God is. He's a God of justice. It was his very justice that sent Jesus to the cross. Second, we're to love mercy. Well, this would seem to negate justice. This mercy is found in the cross of Christ. Rather than show kindness or compassion or steadfast love, particularly to to the less fortunate and the less successful, the people of Israel pursued this, this ruthless policy of exploitation and greed and fraud and murder. And God said, as a result, I'm not interested in your worship because it's from a wrong heart. God's not interested in your worship on Sunday. If Monday through Saturday, you live like the world. God's not interested in your worship on Sunday if it's not authenticated by your life the rest of the week. Because God desires obedience more than sacrifice. God desires that we would develop an inward character of holiness through mercy. Finally, Micah states that this means we're to walk humbly. You know, God's honored by a church that is marked by humility. Too many of us believe that we don't need to learn. That we've kind of figured it out. We're not, we're not there yet. We're not arrogant enough to say that. But, but we've got it together. Too many of us believe that we are here to instruct others as though God has given us some spiritual gift of counsel. But 1 Peter 5, 5 tells us that God goes to war against the proud and gives grace to the humble. You know, God is not impressed with your intellect, your abilities, 
your finances, your experience, your personality, or your social status. James 1.17 tells us it all came from God anyways. So we're to be humble people. People marked by mercy and love. And any worship that does not come from this kind of heart is a worship that fails to approach God rightly. So worship in spirit means that we worship out of an obedient heart that results in authentic emotion. Where do we stand with that? Now, while not comprehensive, over the past month, we've looked at some important principles in worship. That we're to worship in truth. That we should remember God's glory and worship Him for for Him, not ourselves. To God alone and for God alone. And, And we also remember that God is a God of truth and everything we do and say should be driven by and come out of the truth of God's word. And that we care more about the question, is it true and is it right, than about the questions, do people like this and will this get people to come? We need to worship the right one the right way. So we sing the word and we read the word and we pray the word and we preach the word and we picture the word in the ordinances. It also means that we seek one another's edification in worship. We care more about others' spiritual growth than our own preferences. We humbly serve one another and we don't make church about us. Finally, we sing together and we all sing to one another. We sing joyfully and boldly and triumphantly. But we also need to worship in spirits. If we worship in truth but simply go through the motions, it's not true, authentic worship that is acceptable to God. We respond in naturally emotional ways. It means that sometimes we raise our hands. Sometimes we clap. Sometimes we shout. Sometimes we rejoice And sometimes we mourn, but will not suppress our emotions just because others think it's weird. It means that we'll worship with devotion, that Sunday will lead into worship all week, that God will dominate every area of life, that we'll seek Him with everything that we have. We'll love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our minds. Finally, we worship with obedience. When God convicts, we'll respond. We'll obey the word. It needs to entail a humble, teachable spirit. Understanding that no one here is better than anyone else. No one should look on others with disdain or ridicule. It means that we can't throw a fit when we don't get our way or things are done differently than we would like. We need to love justice and mercy and humility. You see, every Sunday should be a picture of the kingdom of God. Every Sunday should be a glimpse into what eternity is going to be like. We should love this gathering and joyfully participate. We need to worship the right one, the right way, with the right heart. So what does this mean? Four things. Number one, respond. Are you emotionally engaged in worship? Does the word move you? 
Or are you stoically sitting in your pew lest any smile ever cross your face? Respond to the word. Number two, commit. Commit. All in. Is your life about God? Or is it just something extra you do? If we went into your workplace, would the first way they describe you be, yeah, he's one of those God people? Or would they be shocked to find out you attend church on Sunday? Commit. Or are you content to simply make him a part of your life? Number three, obey. Every service, every Sunday, you should ask the question, how should you change? How should you grow in obedience to what you've learned from God's word? If I ask you tomorrow, what is God teaching you right now? You shouldn't have to search for an answer because you know, because you're obeying his word. Finally, worship. Worship God. It is the highest privilege we get. The one who spoke the world into existence and controls all things by the word of his power has invited you into his presence. What an incredible honor. How dare we sit silently or passively while we do that. We ought to be engaged and excited to worship. Do you worship in spirit and do you worship in truth? Father, we thank you once again for the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, we thank you that you have given us instruction for how we can approach you rightly. To know that as we do this, that we can do so with boldness and find grace and, help to, uh, to, grace and mercy to help in time of need. What our desire is to make this church one that you can be pleased with. To do things the way that you desire. And to make you look as good as you really are. So help us to love your word. To truly love it. Help us to obey it. Even when it's hard. Help us to be humble. To be humble in our interactions with one another. To be humble in our relationship with you. Not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think of ourselves the way that we really are. Horrendous, depraved sinners that have only been saved by incredible grace. So that in all things, you might have the preeminence. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.